0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 23. In the last episode, I wrapped up a three-part series about what is known and theorized concerning the semi-mythical Sea Peoples, a mysterious group that was mentioned in both Egyptian and Ugaritic text, which gets me to the subject of this week's episode, the Philistines, As I covered in the last episode, the sea people who settled in Canaan may have also been the people the Israelites called the Philistines. Over the next few episodes, I'll do as deep of a dive as possible into that theory, along with who these Philistines were. And with that, let's get started. The Philistines lived on the southern coast of Canaan between about the 12th century and 604 BC. It was then that they were exiled to Mesopotamia by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II. This was at the same time that the Israelites were sent east in exile. Of course, we know a great deal about them from the Old Testament, but that's not the only place they're found. Even before, or possibly at the same time that the mentions in the Old Testament were penned, Reliefs in the Temple of Ramses III were carved. This is located at Meninnei Habu, on the west bank of the Nile in Luxor. Ramses III reigned in the 20th Dynasty, and was the last true ruler of the New Kingdom, sitting on the throne between about 1186 and 1155 BC. If we assume that the Exodus was under Ramses II, as many do, and Number 2 died in 1214 BC, then Ramses III could have been on the throne while the Israelites were still wandering. In these reliefs, the Philistines were called the Peleset, which is very similar to the Hebrew word for them, the Peleshet. They were also mentioned in the Syrian text, this time as nearly similar words it's becoming clear that there are more references to them in different texts than to their possible forefathers, the Sea Peoples. And while I'm on the origin and use of the name Philistine, I'm going to spend just a second on what is probably the most surprising and therefore not widely known thing about these peoples and how it affects even our modern world and for once, it comes from the trivial aspects of the etymology of the word itself. The English word philistine comes from the old French word philistine, which was rooted in the classic Latin philistinus. Like nearly all things Latin, that was sourced from Greek, in this case, late Greek, and their word philistinoi. Of course, The Greek was from the ancient Hebrew word I mentioned a minute ago, which simply meant a person from Peleshe. And that's surprising, that it changed so little over the thousands of years that have elapsed in the languages. But that's not what's the fact of the episode. That honor goes to the word Palestine, and the related Palestinian, which follows the same etymological path. Now, to be clear, this by no means means that the people we refer to as Palestinians are, for that matter, the region known to some as Palestine. This does not mean these people are related to the Sea Peoples, or were even settled in the region when the Israelites crossed the Jordan after the 40 years of Exodus wanderings. It's just that the source of the words used are essentially the same. Philistine and Palestine. Back to the text. After the Israelites crossed the Jordan and settled in Canaan, they were in constant conflict with their neighbors to the west. Backing up quite a bit, they were first mentioned in the Table of Nations as having descended from Noah's son Ham through his son Egypt, who was the father of, among others, the Keslohim and the Kaftorim from which the Philistines come. There is disagreement among textual translators and scholars over if this verse was originally meant to show that the Philistines were the offspring of the Keslohim or the Kaftarim. While the Keslohim or the Kaftarim, origin is widely followed by Biblical scholars, a few others consider it to be of Semitic, meaning the Semitic language family, word origin. They were next mentioned in Genesis 21 as controlling the region where Abraham lived. In this chapter, it seems Abraham got along with the Philistines. This was also several hundred years before the proposed arrival of the Sea Peoples in the region, which presents a problem with the theory that the two groups were really one and the same. Later rabbinic writers would propose that the people in the land, at the same time as Abraham, were not the forerunners to those the Israelites would constantly battle hundreds of years later. Maybe that theory solves the issue. But there was another reason these later rabbinic writers would make such a claim. In Genesis, Abraham makes a treaty, a covenant, with the Philistine king Abimelech, from the text at that time Abimelech, with Fikal, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my offspring, or with my posterity, but as I have dealt loyally with you, you will deal with me, and with the land where you have resided as an alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. Abraham's son Isaac either reaffirmed that covenant or created a new, very similar one with this same king in Genesis 26, where we're told the story in the text, and I'm paraphrasing just a little to be more succinct. Then Abimelech went to Isaac from Gerar, with an advisor and the commander of his army, Note that these were the exact same people that visited Abraham an unknown number of years earlier, and some scholars consider this to be problematic. So it goes with ancient text. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me, and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you, so we say, Let there be an oath between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, so that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So Isaac made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac set them on their way and they departed from him in peace. And with that, both Abraham and his son Isaac separately agreed that the two peoples, the future Israelites and the Philistines, would get along in all their future generations. But of course, they didn't. And the later writers had to justify this. There was some justification for the theory in that the words used in the most ancient of Hebrew texts between the Philistines of Genesis and those in Exodus and later are slightly different. This differentiation was also held by the authors of the Septuagint, who translated the word used in the source text as other nations, not Philistines, at least where it's found in both the Book of Judges and the writings of the prophet Samuel. This has led to the proposal that when used in these places, it's not even referring to a specific nation or ethnic group, but instead to a more generic meaning of non-Israelites living in the promised land, especially when used in the context of the judge Samson, along with kings Saul and David. More on Samson in a minute, and the two kings, in the next episode. Maybe the Philistines were different people in Genesis and Exodus, but certainly not definitely. Add to this that the later residents of Canaan may have been the recently immigrated Sea Peoples, and you end up with a bit more support for the theory proposed by the ancient rabbinic writers that they were truly different. They were mentioned in Exodus when Moses gave the borders of the land the Israelites would settle in. Overall, these borders roughly aligned with where the Philistines were said to live in Egyptian and Assyrian sources. Like I said, there's more support in many sources for them than there are for the Sea Peoples. Also worth noting is what is not mentioned, not by Moses or later or even earlier in the Old Testament. And that's that it's never said the Philistines were one of the nations to be removed, driven out from Canaan. Not in the list found in Genesis 15, where God told Abraham. On the day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If the Philistines were the sea peoples, then they weren't in the land when Abraham was there, arriving several hundred years after his death. They were also not listed in Deuteronomy 7 or 20 when Moses tells the Israelites who they will encounter and defeat. That list included, in Moses' words from chapter 7, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than the Israelites. The list included in chapter 20 had only six nations listed, with the Girgashites being left out. Not to go too deep into that rabbit hole, But according to later rabbinic tradition, between Deuteronomy 7 and 20, the Girgashites departed Canaan for North Africa, thought to be migrating as far away as Morocco, Casablanca, jumping out of that hole. Earlier in the Exodus wanderings, God leads the Israelites away from the Philistines. His logic is recorded as, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was nearer, for God thought, if the people face war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So, they were a mighty and warring nation at that time, and possibly not willing to live up to their earlier covenant with Abraham, or a different people. And, as we should all know by now, This didn't keep many, if not most, Israelites from complaining that they should have never have left Egypt. Later, in Joshua, they were mentioned as being ruled by five kings in the cities of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. This places them on the Mediterranean coast, from the wadi Gaza in the south to the Yarkon River in the north. On our modern map, with more recognizable names. This is from just inside the Israeli border with Egypt to Tel Aviv, a distance of about 60 miles or 100 kilometers. The general assumption from this, since they were five different rulers, and not a single ruler over the entire people, was that they were more of a decentralized confederation of people that shared a common background and likely a very similar culture. Back in the Old Testament, we see in several places, more frequently in the book of Judges, that the Israelites, at least some of them, to quote Judges 10, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshipping the Baals and the Ashtorees, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, They abandoned the Lord and did not worship him, and this came with what should have been an expected consequence. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the Israelites that year. For eighteen years they oppressed all the Israelites that were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. This oppression by the Philistines, among others, continued off and on throughout the period of the Judges, to the point that just before the birth of Samson, we're told that the Philistines oppressed the Israelites for 40 years. Sometime after the Judge Samson reached adulthood, he began to engage the Philistines, which means, at least according to Jewish tradition, the Israelites were oppressed by the Philistines for at least 55 years, probably longer. What happened between Samson and the Philistines is best told, at least some of it, by a tight paraphrasing of the text. Samson married a Philistine woman, which ended up proving to be an ongoing problematic relationship. From the text, Once Samson went down to Timnah, there he saw a Philistine woman. Pausing for a second, Timnah was a city just to the west of Jerusalem. I'll cover that place when I get to the book of Judges, if not earlier. Back in the text. He then told his parents, I saw a Philistine woman at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among your kin or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the unclean Philistines? They couldn't change his mind. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking a pretext to act against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel, meaning it was during this 55-plus year period. Then Samson went down with his parents to Timnah. When he came to the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion roared at him. The Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and he tore the lion apart bare-handed, as one might tear apart a kid. And of course, in this context, a kid is not a human child, but is instead a baby goat. He did not tell his parents what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased him. After a while, he returned to marry her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. The lion and bees and honey episode most certainly had a different meaning in those ancient cultures than it does today. To me at least, it just seems a little weird, at least at this point in the narrative. It'll come full circle, somewhat, in a minute. When he came to his parents, he gave some of the honey to them, and they ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. Of course, I've never killed a lion, especially true with my bare hands. But I have seen much roadkill, and never has a colony of bees decided to build a hive and make honey in the carrion. His father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there as the young men were accustomed to. When the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty festal garments. Pausing again, In this era before industrialized clothing production, this was a hefty wager. Linen was woven by hand and was certainly more expensive than leather or hide-based garments, which weren't cheap either. The point is, 60 pieces of clothing would easily be more than the average person Israelite or Philistine would earn in a year, possibly several, unpausing. Sampson then tells them, If you cannot explain it to me, Then you shall give me thirty linen garments, and thirty festal garments. So they said to him, Ask your riddle, let us hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, Out of the strong came something sweet. But for three days they could not explain the riddle. No surprise there. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband to explain the riddle to us, or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? They weren't playing fair. Samson's unnamed wife wept before him, saying, You hate me. You do not really love me. You have asked a riddle of my people, the Philistines, but you have not explained it to me. He said to her, Look, I have not told my father or my mother. Why should I tell you? And that gives us insight into the priority wives took over parents. Leaving and cleaving, meaning the passage in Matthew where Jesus told the people, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Obviously, a later New Testament concept. In Samson's time, parents were still higher ranked. Of course, This could have been because his wife was a Philistine, though Jesus didn't give that caveat. It could also have been a flaw in Samson's personality. We're never told. Back to the story. His wife wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and because she nagged him, on the seventh day he told her. Then she explained the riddle to her people. The men of the town said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Pausing again, Did Samson just compare his wife to a heifer? A cow? I'm going to leave that one alone, except to say that I don't know about that society. But that comparison certainly wouldn't go over well today. Back in the story. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and he went down to Ashkelon. Ashkelon was, well, still is, a coastal city in what is today Israel, meaning that at that time it was a Philistine city, just north of Gaza. There Samson killed 30 men, took their spoil, and gave the festal garments to those who had explained the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So, he at least honored half his bet, as there were also thirty linen garments wagered, but no mention was made of them. The chapter wraps up with a weird statement, that his Philistine wife was given to the man who had been his best man. Emphasis on the past tense. The narrative continues in the next chapter. After a while, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife, bringing along a kid, a baby goat. Fortunately, this part clears up a bit about his wife being given away, as it seems she was given to his best man, likely meaning his best servant or follower, for safe passage back to her father's house, Samson told his father-in-law, I want to go into my wife's room, but her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I was sure that you had rejected her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister prettier than she? Why not take her instead? And just when we thought things were being unweirded, we're right back into the differences between that place and time, in our modern Western culture. Samson said to them, This time, when I do mischief to the Philistines, I will be without blame, meaning that the last time, when he killed 30 of their men and possibly didn't live up to his end of the wager, it didn't go unnoticed. So, Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Yep, lions and bees and foxes. He took the foxes along with some torches, and he turned the foxes tail to tail, meaning back to back, and put a torch between each pair of tails. He then set fire to the torches. He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up the shocks and the standing grain, along with the vineyards and olive groves, something he considered to be mischief, Potentially, the severity of the context was yet another thing lost in translation. Then the Philistines asked, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken Samson's wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father. That's not going to go over well, but they did threaten this towards the beginning of the story. Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will not stop until I have taken revenge on you. He struck them down hip and thigh with great slaughter, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etium. Obviously, things were escalating between the Israelites, at least Samson, and the Philistines. Etium is later described by Josephus, as being 50 furlongs from Jerusalem. A furlong was about an eighth of a mile, so 50 furlongs is just over 6 miles, 10 kilometers. It's thought that this Etium was near where Solomon had his pools built, a place I covered several episodes ago. As you can see, in the beginning, if they were the same people, the Israelites and Philistines at least tolerated each other. But, After the return from Egypt, things were not nearly as good. And that provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the Philistines as found in the Old Testament and outside record. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.